Welcome to our social landscape. I'm J.R. Woodward. This is a combination of a two-part post called Defund the Police. In light of the civil unrest over the last few months focusing on the interactions between law enforcement and communities of color, the call to defund the police has emerged as a rallying cry for people exhausted by examples of violence visited upon people of color by the police. As such, I'd like to explore what I think it means to defund the police. Before I discuss what this might look like in practical terms, I'd say the simplest and most direct answer is that it means we need to dramatically shrink their function. This idea is not new, but has gained traction since the George Floyd killing in Minneapolis and was ramped up after the killing by police of Richard Brooks outside of Wendy's in Atlanta. I have witnessed and engaged in online discussions about this issue with police officers around the country, and mostly I have heard individual narratives. You don't know what it's like if you're not a cop, that type of thing. I believe this is not seeing the woods for the trees. The ability to step back and view this as an outsider is what sociologist C. Wright Mills called the sociological imagination. There doesn't need to be final agreement on right or wrong, but simply the ability, or at least the willingness, to see outside your own experience. I believe many police officers feel attacked by the national dialogue and become defensive, digging in their heels. To wit, I read the following post written by a police officer in South Florida recently. Quote, when I call the police for help, I want wolves to show up. I want the biggest, baddest, nastiest wolves with sharp teeth and big bites to protect my family. God created cops. Cops do the Lord's work. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Matthew 5, 9. End quote. I responded to this post by pointing out that America has a different relationship with cops than most places, and there will be more below. Another police officer on the string replied to me, quote, You think you could be a good cop? Put your money where your mouth is and see how much you can deal with people trying to kill you and for 30 years having your head on a swivel 24-7, making sure even when you're off duty, your family members and you can go anywhere without worrying about being killed. Until then, shut the fuck up. End quote. First, this type of interaction does not engender constructive dialogue. I don't like your view so fuck off is embarrassing if it's representative of the career as a whole and this person was speaking for the career whether or not he had permission to. Additionally, according to a study compiled by Police Reports Open Data and published in the New York Times, the share of time devoted to handling violent crime in police departments is very small nationally, about 4%. Surely some jurisdictions have more and some have less, but overall, the, quote, head on a swivel 24-7 making sure you are not killed, end quote, is not indicative of most police officers' reality nationally. One way to try and understand the role of police is to examine international data and how the U.S. compares. The U.S. doesn't have to be the exact same as other countries, but there seem to be huge differences, as a study from the University of Chicago has found. Research in the university's law school investigated the lethal use of force policies of police in the 20 largest U.S. cities and found that not a one was operating under guidelines that followed the minimum standards laid out under international human rights law. 
Some departments allow deadly responses in cases of escaping suspects, fugitive, or prevention of crime, all scenarios that would be deemed to fall well outside the boundaries set by international law. I recently spoke to a close friend that I've known all my life who is a police officer in South Florida, and he assured me his department is progressive in these areas. They are not permitted to shoot at cars or chase stolen vehicles, and they are required to document with photographs any use of force. This is definitely better than the alternative, but is it enough? And does it address deeper underlying issues? By comparison, in Spain, for instance, officers have to use verbal cautions and fire warning shots before they are permitted to aim at anybody. Chokeholds have been banned in Europe for many years, and all member nations of the United Nations, including the United States, have signed on to a code of conduct for law enforcement officials adopted in 1979. Yet, last year over 1,000 people were killed by police in the United States, while most European countries have less than one person killed by police per year. Even taking into consideration relative size, the numbers are skewed. For example, the U.S. has roughly 28 times more people than Germany, but less than 300 people have been killed by police in Germany over the last 30 years. So the United States is different. How much of it is our police and how much of it is our citizenry? Perhaps it's both. Therefore, how do we effectuate or expect changes in the police without changes in the larger society? I think the first step is to honestly reckon with the history of law enforcement in the country. The role of the police is built into our national narrative. The side of the car says to protect and serve, but what is being protected and who is being served? The genesis of police departments in the U.S. was to protect and serve those with power. Keep in mind that there were no police departments anywhere in Europe or the U.S. prior to the 19th century. See here, the rise of the Chicago Police Department, Class and Conflict, 1850-1894, by Sam Matrani, Associate Professor of History at the College of DuPage, for a detailed explication of early policing. In large cities, particularly in the North, Police departments developed as a way to control immigrants and repress working-class citizens who were seen as a threat via organized labor. Immigrants from all over Europe and beyond were arriving on America's shores in the 1800s, and municipalities began to hire and train people to keep them within the confines of the established social order. This essentially shifted the economic burden from capitalist elites intent on protecting their investments to the public sector paid for by tax dollars. For example, the New York City police force wasn't formed until the 1840s, and the Chicago police force arose in the 1850s. If the police were really created by God, as the aforementioned blogger stated, then God must not have been too concerned before the threat of working class rebellions in the mid-1800s. As for the South, the official law enforcement apparatus arose directly as a response to slave revolts, and in particular, a response to white folks and people of color getting together to foment rebellion. Indeed, the National Law Enforcement Museum has a quote on their webpage from a slave patroller's oath in North Carolina, 1828, that reads, quote, I, patroller's name, do swear that I will, as searcher for guns, swords, and other weapons among the slaves in my district, faithfully and as privately as I can, discharge the trust reposed in me as the law directs to the best of my power, so help me God." End quote. 
Policing began and continues to be, in large degree, intrinsically linked to serving and protecting the interests of a certain class in society, in contrast to the honorable notion of a servant of the people. What about specific individual officers? Certainly, many officers have their sights set on being kind and just. However, there is no profit in trying to examine each officer or suspect individually. As I have written before, sociologists tend to view these issues as structural, not individual. There may be good cops and bad cops, but we can drown in minutia if we don't expand our scope of analysis to the social systems in place that produce and reproduce the systems that control our everyday life experiences. What would a structural transformation look like then, this move to defund the police? As I mentioned at the beginning of this post, I think it starts with reducing the day-to-day functions of the police. My aforementioned lifelong friend who has been in law enforcement for over 30 years in South Florida told me, I don't think structural changes are what's needed. I think a reevaluation of what we as law enforcement should be doing is more in order. But in my view, these are one and the same. To reevaluate what law enforcement should be doing is the first step to making structural changes. He continued, quote, There's a problem with our mental health care system if the county jail is the largest mental health provider in your county. The police have become the dumping ground for every social problem that no one wants to deal with. We are not equipped or trained to be mental health professionals, yet none of them want to jump into the fray. I don't think there is a police department in the country that wouldn't give up a portion of their budget to the mental health workers if they would handle those calls." End quote. Having trained mental health counselors interacting with citizens instead of untrained police is a first step. Another step would be tackling homelessness. Ordinances that criminalize sleeping outside, panhandling, and urinating outside effectively make homelessness itself a crime a fast-growing trend across the nation at a time when many cities face a severe affordable housing shortage. Research shows that it costs approximately $60,000 to arrest and jail the homeless. It's far cheaper to simply house them. Indeed, a number of European nations and some cities here in the U.S. have seen a radical reduction in the amount of long-term homeless folks by setting them up in safe, comfortable, low-income housing. It's much easier to get a job and therefore contribute back to society when you have an address and a shower before the interview. Additionally, formerly incarcerated people are 10 times more likely to end up homeless than the general population, so arresting them for being homeless and eventually releasing them just creates a rotating door paid for financially by city budgets and morally by society as a whole. In essence, we have increasingly criminalized activities over the years, which has led to a bloated police budget. When more things are crimes, we end up with more criminals, and more money being spent on enforcement instead of prevention. We now need a concomitant decriminalization of certain activities. Mental illness used to be seen as a condition to be treated, but as the mentally ill increasingly encounter often untrained police officers, their prospects for treatment are overwhelmed by the likelihood of arrest. Similarly, The homeless have been viewed at times as people down on their luck and deserving of assistance, but this has changed as their numbers have grown and budgets to assist have shrunk. And drug addiction, largely seen as a health issue, not a criminal issue, until the passage of the Harrison Narcotics Act has resulted in police encounters that often end in violence. So this is what defund the police means to me. 
hiring and training people to handle scenarios that are outside the expertise of the police, in the long run making the job of the police less stressful and less fraught with violent confrontations. And at the same time, channeling citizens into support systems that benefit them individually, so less private troubles, while simultaneously altering social structures impacting public issues. Where would the money come from? Well, in most cities, like here in Jacksonville, the police are the largest city expense, so much of it would come from reallocation. According to former United States Secretary of Labor Robert Reich, last year Americans spent $107 billion more on police than on public housing, and America is now spending more money on prisons than on public schools. Fifteen states now spend $27,000 more per prisoner than they do per student. Millions of dollars have also been spent on the militarization of police, tanks, drones, etc. While possibly counterintuitive to some, extant data actually show militarized police forces fail to protect the police or reduce crime and are more likely to be employed in predominantly African American communities. Funds associated with the Department of Defense's 1033 program, which supplies local municipalities with military-grade weapons, should be used to help fund these other social programs. I think it's important to note that defunding the police ultimately just means reallocating monies from the police budget to social services, not completely erasing police forces across the country. Although, there might be some police departments that do need to be disassembled and reassembled in a more humane, less vicious form. The title, police, can remain, but there needs to be a radical transformation of their duties and responsibilities. Some current officers would be retained, many could be retrained, and still others would be dismissed. This would entail a shifting of jobs, not an overall reduction of jobs. A potential hurdle will be convincing mayors and governors, who often compete against their election challengers to see who can be the toughest on crime, that this defunding of the police will actually make their constituencies safer. It will be a hard sell for some, and we live in a political climate where candidates are vilified if they seem soft. The term panty-waist liberal comes to mind here. But hopefully, reason will win out. Talking about rational actors in the political sphere these days does seem sadly idealistic, but hopefully citizens can push for change from current policymakers and elect change if and when that fails. The call to defund the police has moved a once unthinkable possibility into mainstream discourse in the United States. Whether this leads to substantial structural change remains to be seen, but if nothing else, it signifies that the days of rallying around tepid platitudes such as unity and respect may be nearing their end. You've been listening to Defund the Police on Our Social Landscape. I'm J.R. Woodward. If you have any questions, please email me at woodward at fscj.edu. Thanks for listening.